Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Dose delivery, the UK set to vaccinate frontline workers this week. Bailout breakthrough, a $900 billion US aid package in the works. And time to shine, the first ever winner of Time's Kid of the Year joins First Move. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us as we await a new week of medicinal milestones in the COVID-19 fight and hopefully some fiscal fireworks out of Washington, D.C. too. Let me walk you through this. The first doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine arrived in the U.K. over the weekend with vaccinations set to begin tomorrow. Meanwhile, U.S. health officials hold a hearing on that vaccine on Thursday this week and are expected to approve the jab soon after. Also in the United States, lawmakers rushing to complete work on a $900 billion stimulus package, a task made all the more urgent, of course, by Friday's weaker-than-expected jobs report. So we'll be keeping an eye, and we have all the details on that, too. It's clearly a week of great expectations, though, for investors. I think the good news and those expectations have been expected for a while now. Global stocks are softer, some consolidation after last week's gains. All three U.S. majors closing at record highs on Friday. That's happened for the first time in over two years. Sentiment in Asia, meanwhile, dented on Monday following reports that the White House could announce sanctions on senior Beijing, uh, sorry, Beijing officials tied to the Hong Kong crackdown. China, meanwhile, posting a blockbuster 21% rise in exports last month, the biggest rise in almost three years, driven in part by an almost 40% spike in demand for medical equipment. The Chinese trade surplus with the United States hitting new record highs. The incoming Biden administration can add that to a long list of challenges for now, though, of course, nothing more urgent than the COVID crisis. Let's get to the drivers. We begin with the global vaccine ventures. The UK bracing for its shot at a COVID-free future. The Pfizer and BioNTech COVID vaccine arriving across Britain as the country gets ready to administer its first precious doses tomorrow. Cyril Vanier joins us now from Downing Street. It feels like a a major turning point, Cyril, in the fight against uh, COVID-19. But of course, for all nations around the world that are dealing with this, it's sort of the test case for the distribution and the logistical challenges of handling this specific vaccine. What are we hearing from the government? Well, look, Julia, you're absolutely right. This is arguably the closest thing we have to a silver bullet against this pandemic. And here in the UK, the deployment starts tomorrow. The vaccine was approved less than a week ago. So that gives you a sense of how fast the logistics have had to be organized and handled. The first doses arrived in country uh, on Thursday. They were checked for their quality, make sure the integrity of the vaccine wasn't compromised. And then they were dispatched out to some 50 hospitals, which will act as vaccination centers here in England. They're also being sent, of course, to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, where uh, hospitals will also be acting as vaccination hubs. Now, uh, the, the priority patients here in England were supposed to be uh, care home residents. That's not going to happen quite as planned, just due to the logistical difficulties of 
um, carrying and taking the vaccine to the care homes. Remember, we're talking about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine here. And as you well know, Julia, this is the one that needs to be kept at minus 70 degrees Celsius. Huge logistical challenges. So as a result, the hospitals here in England will first and foremost vaccinate people who, uh, 80-year-olds and above, who are already in hospital, either outpatients or inpatients. Then they will start inviting uh, care home workers and uh, at-risk members of the public, elderly members of the public across communities in England and across the UK. That is all starting tomorrow. First jabs being delivered tomorrow. That doesn't mean that tomorrow night you will see people already immunized against the coronavirus because let's remind our viewers here, this one takes two jabs 21 days apart. So the the very first days when you will start to see some people immunized against the virus here in the UK, the last days of 2020, Julia. Yeah, it's fantastic. And we went and watched. And as you point out, keeping that vaccine colder than Mars, quite frankly, is a challenge for all. And the UKs are getting there first. Sir great to have you with us at Downing Street there. All right. Meanwhile, the first shipment of a COVID-19 vaccine made in China arrived in Indonesia on Sunday. The president broke the news in a televised address. I'd like to convey good news. Today we have received 1.2 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine. This vaccine made by Sinovac that we have been testing since last August. We have been preparing for months through simulations in several provinces, and I am sure that once it is decided that we can begin the vaccination, everything will be ready. And David Culver joins us now. David, last week you were giving us an inside look at China's preparations for getting these vaccines to other nations. And quite fascinating to hear the president there saying, look, we've been planning this, how we distribute this for months It's a huge logistic and coordination effort that's underway right now. What's interesting compared to what you saw in the UK with Cyril describing kind of the distribution there, here it's not about domestic distribution, Julia. It's about global distribution. That's where China's focus has been. Now, that's not all rooted in goodwill. We've got to stress that. These companies like Sinovac, the one behind this uh, vaccine that's going to Indonesia right now, they stand to make some money from this. And then, of course, There's the PR side of it for China. I mean, they look at this in many ways as an opportunity to repair their image in following, you know, what many have perceived to have been uh, a negative and mishandling of the initial outbreak. So this is perhaps an opportunity to show that they can redeem themselves, if you will, by providing a vaccine that will help many countries, including Indonesia. As you heard the Indonesian president point out there, they've been going through the clinical trials here. They've actually been doing the phase three trials within Indonesia, as well as thousands of volunteers within Brazil as well. So these these are countries that are used to this vaccine, Sinovac in particular. It's a Beijing-based company. I actually toured them a few months ago here and met with some of their representatives to get an idea as to how they were able to go forward with this effort. What's also interesting is that this is requiring a lot of infrastructure construction here in Beijing. They actually have to come up with an entire new facility to provide the COVID-19 vaccine because the government regulation requires that they provide a separate space to produce this vaccine. So they have that already constructed. They're obviously producing it. 1.2 million doses, as you heard the president say, already arriving in Indonesia in good form, good condition, as they say, because it's had to been transported through this another infrastructure buildup, this climate controlled way of getting it from 
point A to point B, and that's everywhere in between. It's got to maintain a certain temperature. And then they are expecting another 1.8 million doses into the new year. Now, their focus is going to be, Julia, as we've heard many countries say their focus will be frontline workers. You're talking about the medical personnel, perhaps those who work in customs, those who have a lot of interaction with people. That's the plan. What's interesting also to point out, it's not been approved yet here in China. Sinovac is not a a go-ahead with giving its distribution to the people of China as of yet. Uh, And you heard the president there in Indonesia also point out that as soon as they get the go-ahead there, they'll go forward with it. So we'll see where that approval process falls in the coming days and weeks. And as of now, China has not yet approved any vaccine to be distributed here within the People's Republic. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, David? You raise some great points. How to uh, gain friends and influence people. There are incentives here to provide vaccines to the rest of the world for many reasons right. here for China, beyond the obvious, the trade and the perhaps some degree of culpability or concern that people look at China in, uh, in the beginning of this virus and, and ultimately where it came from. David, great analysis, as always. Yeah. Thank you. David Culver there. All right, over to Europe now. As some countries prepare to relax coronavirus restrictions for Christmas, others are introducing new ones to curb the pandemic. Denmark has announced a partial lockdown for more than a third of its counties. Starting Wednesday, bars, restaurants and many other venues will have to close until the 3rd of January. Most school students will stay at home. In Greece, they're extending most of their restrictions through Christmas. Schools, entertainment venues and courts will be shut until January 7th. And people in the German state of Bavaria are being told to stay in their homes unless there's a good reason to go out. That applies until January the 5th. The situation especially worrying here in the United States. As you can see, the number of new cases is proportionately much higher than in Europe, not to mention in Asia. The trend is not positive either. Now, of course, this is also dictated by the degree of testing that takes place. But that chart, pretty illustrative. Stephanie Elam has the latest. The alarming surge in new coronavirus cases has medical experts more concerned than ever. We're not likely to see a peak in the number of infections until about the end of December, maybe into January. So as bad as things are right now, they're going to get a lot worse. The United States has added more than 1.2 million new coronavirus cases in the first six days of December alone. The gatherings that we saw in Thanksgiving will lead to a surge. It will happen this week and next week. And we cannot go into the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa with this same kind of attitude. Hospitalizations continue to rise. More than 101,000 Americans are hospitalized with the virus nationwide. Hospitals are getting full and it's just hard to find spaces for people So that's actually another crisis situation. I'm very worried about what's going to happen over the next three to six weeks. This morning, some 33 million people in California are under new stay-at-home orders as ICUs in parts of the state are rapidly filling up. On Sunday, California's Department of Public Health reporting more than 30,000 cases, a new daily record. The new restrictions order bars, hair salons, museums and movie theaters to close. But retail stores are allowed to remain open at 20 percent capacity. Restaurants are limited to takeout and delivery services only. Some restaurant owners pushing back on the new regulations. One restaurant owner frustrated that her outdoor dining patio has been forced to shut down, even though, she says, a video production company set up an outdoor eating area for its employees right next to her own parking lot. 
tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, that's safe. This week, the Food and Drug Administration will meet to discuss authorizing emergency use for Pfizer's vaccine. President-elect Joe Biden saying Friday his team had seen no detailed plan from the Trump administration to deliver a vaccine to Americans. But the Trump administration is assuring the public they are ready. We have comprehensive plans from the CDC, working with 64 public health jurisdictions across the country, as our governors have laid out very detailed plans that we've worked with them on. We haven't had a chance yet to sit down with the transition team and explain in detail everything that has been planned and been done. We look forward to that happening. We actually, I think, have a meeting planned later this week. Stephanie Elam reporting there. Now, the need for emergency action in Congress could not be greater as the COVID crisis deepens across the United States. The new stay-at-home orders adding fresh urgency to a $900 billion aid package gaining support on Capitol Hill. John Harwood is live at the White House for us. John, great to have you with us. One of the key architects of this compromise bipartisan package, Senator Mark Warner said to our Jake Tapper over the weekend, we could get an agreement as early as today. Dare we hope... Yes, I think uh, it's pretty clear that the momentum is powerful on behalf of this. And as uh, Americans see the extent of the spread, uh, you have the combination of both the extent of this uh, raging spread across the country, how close we are to relief from a vaccine. And I think there's great consciousness, uh, a rising consciousness within the uh, members of Congress of both parties that if we can just get a bridge from where we are now to the uh, safety that the vaccine is going to provide us, uh, we'll be in much better condition. You also have, of course, as you know, Julia, the end of the year, people's authorization for extended unemployment, people's protection against mass evictions, which are on track if we don't get some relief, uh, the uh, concern that state and local governments are going to have to lay off millions of people. They've already, they're already, we're already down uh, a large number of uh, state and local government workers because their revenues cratered when the economy shut down. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is increasingly accepted by everyone that we need something. It's not going to be as much as Democrats want, uh, but Republicans have uh, uh, made an initial move. And I think Joe Biden's going to count on the fact that whatever uh, uh, shortcomings there are in this package now, he can get another one once he takes office in January. Yeah, let's just get something done to protect the millions of people, to your point, that could potentially be thrown out of their homes as, uh, as early as January. John, also some action in Georgia over the weekend, a debate between the two candidates fighting for seats in the Senate. Of course, this is going to determine, after the runoffs in January, the balance of power in Congress. President Trump also there. What are you hearing behind the scenes about the sway here for voters and uh, how that outcome could turn out? Well, the, we haven't had a whole lot of polling in those two races. Mm. There was uh, a Survey USA poll last week that showed uh, Raphael Warnock up on Kelly Leffner a few points. Narrow, very narrow lead, but almost a dead heat, uh, heat race between John Ossoff, the Democrat, and David Perdue, the incumbent Republican. Uh, so I think uh, uh, we're looking at very close uh, finishes. And one of the questions is going to be, what is the relative turnout on both sides? Historically, Democrats have had problems in runoff elections that occur after the principal election day uh, in turning out African-American voters. There are some signs that they're being more successful in uh, generating enthusiasm this time around. Uh, on the Republican side, the question is, 
are the attacks that the president is making on the voting process, the integrity of the voting process, going to depress a Republican turnout. He's been attacking the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. Uh, so we don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, the president did at his rally over the weekend urge people to turn out and vote, even while he continued to attack Brian Kemp uh, and the secretary of state. Uh, so uh, I think on balance, there's not clear evidence that either party is going to suffer a huge uh, uh, unusual drop off in uh, turnout and enthusiasm. And so we're looking for very, very close races that are uh, as close as you would expect with the Senate on the line, as closely as the Senate is divided on January 5th. Yeah, everything to play for and money pouring into the campaigns here as well. John Harwood, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, still to come here on First Move, Europe's unicorn, the CEO of Sweden's shop now by later app Klarna, joins us to discuss the company's bumper valuation expansion to the United States and a possible IPO. And Time Magazine's first ever kid of the year. I'm joined by the 15-year-old scientist and inventor taking on some of the world's biggest challenges from lead in drinking water to cyberbullying. That's all to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the Dow and the S&P look set to pull back from record highs set on Friday. The Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq all rose 1% or more last week on vaccine hopes and rising expectations for fresh emergency aid. Investors hoping that November's disappointing job gains will perhaps prod lawmakers into concerted action this week, as John was discussing. The bulls, in the meantime, are bracing for a fresh stampede of Wall Street unicorns. Home rental giant Airbnb and food delivery service DoorDash are set to begin trading this week. Both firms are seeing strong investor demand. This month, in fact, could go down as the strongest December on record for U.S. IPOs, more than 100. And that's uh, one of the uh, biggest stories, and we'll bring it back to that now. All right, more than 100,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19 for a fifth consecutive day. That's what the United States is dealing with when it comes to the pandemic right now, with vaccines still months away for most Americans and no new stimulus agreed by the government. It could be a very long and difficult winter. Dr. Richard Besser is director and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's also a former acting director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Besser, always great to have you on the show. Stark contrast there between the exuberance in the markets and the, the challenges I think that the country's facing. And it's the rapid increase in hospitalizations and, and COVID cases that I think is so alarming to certainly the healthcare community out there, if not people around America. Yeah, I mean, Julia, the 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 disconnect between the two is is absolutely striking. It's it's understandable the market's responding to the promise of, of vaccines, but what really concerns me is the reality of what we face right now and and going through this winter is that vaccines um, are not going to save the tens of thousands of lives that will be lost. Uh, if people don't change their behavior and if Congress doesn't step up 
and provide resources so that people are able to make choices uh, about, about what they do. Staying home when they're sick, uh, letting people know who they've been exposed to if, if, if they uh, have, have an infection. Um, you know, if, if people cannot deal with the, the threat of, of, of eviction if they're not working, of not putting food on the table if they're not working, uh, then we're going to be in real trouble this winter. You can't take the right behaviours if you simply have to go to work to feed your families, quite frankly, and that's the choices that people are having to make. Is it melodramatic to suggest that the decisions that people and what they do between now and ultimately when we see vaccines being given out more broadly could determine whether they live long enough, quite frankly, to get that vaccine? Well, you know, it's it, 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 it's a challenge because most people who get this infection will will do well with it. And it's important that people recognize that. Uh, but not everyone will. And you may be that person who does well with this, but you're exposing an elderly relative, uh, someone who has an underlying medical condition, uh, and they run into trouble uh, and get extremely ill or hospitalized or die from this. So getting people to change their behavior to help protect their, their families, their loved ones, and people in the communities uh, is, is very, very challenging. You don't want to over scare people in terms of what their personal risk is, but you want to motivate people to do things for the, for the common good. And for many people, as we were just saying, there really is no choice. Uh, they have, uh, there's there millions of people who have to go to work to put food on the table and to pay the rent, uh, and we need support for them. Dr. Besser, we are expecting the debate to take place between regulators, of course, about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine this week. Do you expect to see sign-off, and, and how quickly do you think that could take place? Are we talking days after Thursday's meeting? Yeah, I, you know, I think it will be pretty quickly. I'm going to be watching that intently. Uh, the FDA scientists have been pouring through all of the data from Pfizer. They're, they're supposed to be posting their report tomorrow for everyone to see. And, you know, before I make a decision on whether I want the vaccine or whether I'd recommend it to my family, to my 90-year-old parents, to my patients, I want to see that the scientists have been able to independently look at that data and make a decision. Uh, if they have and they recommend the vaccine, you know, I will recommend it to my family. I will recommend it uh, to my patients and I will be be as as far up in that line as I can be when my group is called. Uh, so that's really, really critical because we're, the data we're seeing around trust in the process uh, is extremely concerning. We could have uh, a, a, a catastrophe in this nation where we have safe and effective vaccines that very few people want to receive. There was a Pew Research poll released Friday that said that less than half of African-Americans surveyed will, will get the vaccine or would get the vaccine if it were available today. And obviously this, this country has a sort of dark history with African-Americans, with medicines, with the concerns. And you understand the concerns within the community too. Dr. Besser, to your exact point, how do we overcome these? And should we already be seeing better forms of education coming from the government to, to help people understand the risks of not taking this vaccine and to try and tell people that, look, we're only going to give this vaccine authorization when we're confident it's safe to do so? Yeah, I mean, there has been a long history uh, of racism uh, in our medical community, in public health, uh, with experimentation on African-Americans. Uh, to, to date, there continues to be disparate uh, treatment for African-Americans in our healthcare system. Uh, and so overcoming these barriers to trust is, is, is critical. And I, I think it's going to take 
working with trusted voices from the African-American community, from Latino community to, to marginalized communities so that they can hear from trusted leaders in their own communities as to whether it's safe. I don't think you can cajole or uh, 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 individuals into getting this vaccine. You have to understand people's resistance, understand their concerns and, and address those. And what I, what I expect is that as this rolls out and more and more people get this vaccine and we're able to see the experience, that the demand for the vaccine will, will go up and go up dramatically. Yes. As people start to see others get the vaccine and feeling a little bit more confident about life, it will um, allow others to grow in confidence too. I'm going to put you on the spot over timing here, and I know it comes down to supplies and distribution, but just based on a vaccine with a 90-95% efficacy rate, if you imagine a scenario where more people are encouraged, as uh, President-elect Biden has suggested to wear masks for the first 100 days, how quickly do you think, in combination with vaccines being given out, that we start to see mortality rates coming down and, and a return to some degree, perhaps, of, of normality? Well, I, I think that, you know, if the, if the estimates on production are, are, are correct, uh, that this spring, uh, late spring, there should be vaccine for those who, who want it. Um, I expect that there'll be more products that come available besides the two that are being considered uh, right now. Uh, and that's, that's encouraging. Uh, you know, our, our, our foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, our buildings are closed. They've been closed since March. Uh, and I hope uh, that by by uh, September we'll be able to get people back in the building. Uh, but we won't know that until we see how these are received and whether people truly change their behavior. But, you know, I finally see light at the end of the tunnel. And a, a month ago, I wouldn't have said that. Yeah. So it is changing day by day. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Dr. Richard Besser, sir, thank you so much for joining us on the show, as always. Great to chat to you. Thank, thanks thank so much. You. All right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first trading day of the week. And we've got a mostly lower open, the down, the S&P pulling back from record highs. But of gains there in the Nasdaq, as you can see, stimulus hopes could offer support for global stocks this week. U.S. lawmakers, as we've discussed, are rushing to pass a more than $900 billion aid bill to help struggling Americans. The European Central Bank is also expected to announce new monetary support for European nations at its policy meeting on Thursday. And we stay in Europe. Sweden's buy now, pay later shopping app, Klarna, is Europe's most valuable fintech startup. It's worth $10 billion, according to its most recent funding round. The app allows users to buy items and pay for them later in installments. In November, the company announced a further expansion in the United States. It's now available in over 60,000 stores here and partnering with brands from Macy's to H&M. And joining us now is Sebastian Shemotowski. He's the CEO of Klarna. Sebastian, great to have you on the show with us. That's my description of, of what you guys do. And I see you everywhere now when I'm not shopping online, perhaps just browsing. Talk me through the premise what you were trying to achieve sure. with this app and the growth that you've seen. Yeah, so I was just watching previously what you reported on COVID in the US, obviously, and, and it's a great tragedy. Uh, yeah, obviously, is. I personally personally have friends who've been affected by it. But with seeing it, it's actually interesting also to note that a major shift is happening at the same point of time. So at one consequence of this COVID is that 
people are really shifting from credit to debit. So you've seen over $100 billion of credit card debt paid off since the start of the pandemic, and credit card openings have gone down by 50%. And so people are using debit more than ever before, and there's multiple reasons for that. But, uh, but shopping with debit online is far from great. There's a lot of uh, you know downsides to it. Sometimes you need a little bit of financing. Sometimes you need, you know, you may want to make a return and the merchant hold on to your money for three weeks. That's okay on a credit card, not so great on a debit card. And so Klarna really comes in and offers that solution where you, you use your debit card for the most, but occasionally you can uh, then get the benefit of, of an installment and, and so forth. And also it's of no interest, costs no interest to the consumer. So it's interest free for the consumer. So it's great upside compared to traditional credit card where you revolve and you pay interest and so forth. So so I think like this has really propelled Klarna in the US and that's why we've seen now, you know, getting close to 11 million users in the US. We've seen over a million users actually added in the last four or five weeks. It's been quite quite amazing to see how, how the adoption is, is going right now in the US. It's fantastic. So I can certainly see the benefits of spreading the payments. If you buy something, you receive it, you decide not to keep it, you give it back and then you haven't given all the money up front and have to wait uh, for the seller of the goods to give you the money back in, in their own timing. But who takes on the risk if the person who's bought something keeps it and then doesn't make the payments? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't know is we're actually a fully regulated bank since a couple of years ago. So I was part of, of co-finding this 15 years and 15 years ago. And now since a couple of years, we're a bank in, in Europe, obviously in the US. It's a slightly different setup. But as a consequence of that, we do take the full credit risk, the fraud risk of the transaction. So it's not the merchant, but the merchant does pay some, you know, it does cost the merchant a little bit to offer Klan as a service, but they obviously see a lift in people feeling more comfortable to making that purchase, people potentially being able to spend slightly more. And these things then come back in 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 in, in success for the merchants. So so those are um, and, and actually we more and more also send new customers to the merchants. Like I, I think in the last in, in, in this year alone, we'll be sending multiple hundreds of millions of leads of customers to merchants as well, because customers are actively looking for a way to use Klana. So um, so, so that's kind of how the model works. I mean, the growth, and we've talked about this already, but it's such a hugely popular app. I mean, in September, I believe it was the most downloaded retail app in the United States. The six of the UKs using it. You've got 10 million people using the app just to, to give you a sense. What are you seeing in terms of of potential default rates or late payments? Because as you said, you're the ones managing the risk here at least as far as Europe is concerned. What are you seeing? Yeah, no, so, but we are very conservative underwriters as well. So we, obviously it's a little bit different because we're not giving people a big limit. When you sign up for a credit card, you get a big limit and go out and spend it. In our case, you actually, you know, you make a single purchase for $100 you showcase that you can uh, that you can take that responsibly, and then as you kind of in, uh, continue using the service, you might be eligible for buying slightly more and more. So it's kind of a, a joint partnership between us and the customer that we get to know each other and learn of each other of how, how you can use the service. And obviously, if you if you don't pay on time, then we won't be able to allow you to make additional purchases. So it's actually slightly different model than kind of the traditional bank going and saying, here's a credit limit for $10,000. Let's let's see how you can cope with it. So so we're being quite conservative, uh, but it works really well. And, and we've overall, I mean, on our total volume, we process probably this year, you know, 50, 60 billion dollars um, of volume, and we see less than 1% in total of the vo- default rates on that full volume, which is much lower than you usually see in credit cards or, or other type of uh, typ- similar uh, lending products. So, so it works really, really well in that, in, in that, in that way. But also, yeah. I would say that COVID, to some degree, I mean, 
people tend to forget about that. Obviously, it has had a negative impact for some people's economy, for the unfortunate ones that has been affected by layoffs or, or lost their business. But for the big majority still, people's balance sheets are stronger than ever. Uh, they're paying down debt. They're, uh, they have reduced their consumption dramatically and, and they have put more money in their savings accounts. So also still, we don't know obviously how things will play out going forward. But so far, actually, a lot of people's also balance sheets are stronger. Yeah, and we've certainly seen that in the United States with saving rates spiking in particular, too. Um, I mean, I mentioned at the uh, in the introduction, $10 billion valuation. It's a, it's a relatively simple concept. But clearly, as you say, it's rigorously managed in terms of what people can spend. I note that Visa, who you would assume would be a competitor, is an investor. But what's to stop someone like PayPal offering the same kind of uh, facility to people and really bringing the competition home to you? Yeah. yeah, well, I think partially they already are in some markets, but yes. I think we've been competing successfully with PayPal in the Nordics and then in the German speaking countries. And then more recently in the UK, where our share of checkout in all of these markets is higher than PayPal's with the merchants that we work with. So uh, people tend to the, uh, the kind of ability to pay in installments or to pay uh, try before you buy. That's often how people discover about Klarna. But once they start using it, they realize, you know what? When I see my purchase history with Klarna, I don't only see merchant name and amount. I see the actual images of the items that I bought. I have the full digital receipt. I have the ability to track my shipping. I have the ability to have an easier return uh, process and, and access to customer service. So as people, those are usually how people discover us. But once they start using us, they see that the differences versus somebody like PayPal are far, far beyond just the concept of paying on installments. Yeah, the data here and tracking your uh, your own spending and being able to track your purchases actually is um, is phenomenal. Okay, talk to me about timing to profitability here because you are ramping up spending and losses because you're in sort of a growth phase, and then you can tie that to timing perhaps on a potential future IPO. Sebastian, what can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> well. But- I, I can tell you that, you know, we've been actually Clone is a little bit different than the typical tech startup because we were we raised sixty thousand dollars from our business angel and we spent half of it before we became a profitable company um, <laughs> in the first year. So it was a little bit different than like most companies you see today. But you, for the first 14 years of our existence, we were a profitable company. And now in the last year, we obviously because we ramped our investments so much in, in the US and in Europe, we are, uh, you know, our, our, we, we are loss making currently. But but um, we feel very comfortable that the overall I mean, business model has been proven for multiple years. And, you know, as as kind of now the growth rate has really, really grown. I mean, we're looking at the U.S. growing at 500 percent. Right. Um, I mean, we did as many transactions on Black Friday as we did the first four years of the company's existence. So so I think we, we're going to recoup that. And, and then I feel very comfortable that, you know, we're going to um, look at a, a fairly exciting time for the company, whether we IPO or not. I think, yes, that's definitely something I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen some point of time. But at the same point of time. We are a little bit nervous about it because we 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 are a long term company. We believe in the long term and we want to make sure to not get too stuck on focusing on quarterly results. So so we'll see how things play out. Yeah, I was still just caught on the statistic that you gave me about the same number of transactions on Black Friday as the, the first four years of being in business. That's some growth. Uh, Sebastian, keep in touch. We'll uh, track your progress. Uh, fascinating times. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. The CEO of Klarna there. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, the next generation of genius. Time's first ever Kid of the Year talks tackling global issues with innovation. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to First Move. Our next guest is a scientist and an inventor who's just graced the cover of Time. If this makes you feel like a bit of an underachiever, well, brace yourself. She's also just 15 years old. Kitanjali Rowe is Time's first ever Kid of the Year. So far, the Colorado student has created a mobile device to detect lead in drinking water, used artificial intelligence to combat cyberbullying, and she's also making tech to address America's opioid addiction. And I'm very excited to say that she joins us now. Kitanjali, fantastic to have you on the show. I am terrified, inspired, and just overwhelmed by how amazing you are. How does this moment feel? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. And I'm so beyond like humbled, honored, and excited to just have this opportunity to be featured on the cover of Time among so many other fantastic people. But along with that, also be one of the amazing finalists for Kid of the Year who are doing such fantastic things for our world. Yeah, I mean, the shortlist here was phenomenal. But I just want to explain to our audience some of the things that you were, you were working on. A mobile device that can detect lead in drinking water. A certain part of America were being poisoned by lead in the water. And you decided, look, I want to create something to help. Just explain what you did. Yeah, so I heard about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan about four years ago. And it was just unacceptable to me to see how many students my age were basically drinking a poison every day. And that's so unfair because water is supposed to be a basic right that everyone has. So I realized that I wanted to tackle this problem knowing that I wanted to find a way to detect lead in drinking water because the lack of knowledge of contamination was where the bigger end of the problem was. So I created Tethys, which is a device to detect lead in drinking water faster and more inexpensive than the current tools out there. And it's based on carbon nanotube sensor technology and it sends all the data over to your mobile phone on an app that I created. I mean, this is just phenomenal. It was produced it's now being used. And just to remind our viewers, you saw this four years ago and you were inspired to try and help when you were 11 years old. I mean, you know, just to remind people that, you know, you're an innovator. You're not only trying to solve global health problems like this, but you're also trying to inspire others, other young people to, to do more, to try and answer some of these questions too. Just explain this, because this is also critical to, I think, who you are. So a big part of what I've been doing is global outreach, and that is through workshops and innovation sessions that I run. Um, I've actually inspired about 33,800 students to date, and I've also run workshops for parents and educators. So I run these workshops in which everyone comes out with an idea and a process that they can adapt and take their ideas to the next step. Because there are people who want to be innovators. There are youth who want to be innovators. They just don't know where to start. And I'm helping to light that fire so that they can have it continue to burn. Who inspires you? Where did this come from? Yeah, I have a lot of inspirations. And that's from when I was quite literally born to now. Um, My biggest inspiration is obviously my parents for being such important parts of my journey every single day. Obviously my family all around, everywhere around the world. Um, Apart from that, the one person who actually got me into science was Marie Curie because I didn't know females and girls could do science. But I heard about her in in second grade and I realized, oh, maybe I can do that too. Um, And recently I love the work of 
a lot of new female scientists. Um, for example, Charpentier and Dudna, who recently won the Nobel Prize for their latest groundbreaking CRISPR technology, um, which I actually use in my work. Um, and then apart from that, the mentors who have supported me every single step of the way and who have believed in me and my ideas. Yeah, you're phenomenal. I mean, what a great role model for, for women going into STEM subjects, but all, quite frankly, people being excited about innovation and what science can do in the future. You know, I always say I sort of don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And um, you have a bit more time than me, quite frankly. And I was watching the video that you recorded for time when you were talking about, at least in the short term, going to Madagascar, but also bringing bringing dinosaurs back to life. Now, I believe if anyone can do that, you can. Talk me through this. Yeah, I love dinosaurs. I've watched <laughs> the whole Jurassic Park franchise at least six times. And it's the dinosaurs are one of my favorite things in the world. And I will I will work on getting them back to life at one point. Um, <laughs> hopefully I'll be better in the movies, though. That was yeah. kind of at the age of like six when I watched it. <laughs> Oh my goodness, you watched them at six. I, I, I'm trying to work out what age I was when I watched them and I was kind of terrified. So you promised to have a better ending than Jurassic Park if you do attempt to, uh, to bring dinosaurs back. Well, I hope so. That's so scary. <laughs> I, could, I could never, I feel like I could work on getting them back to life, but then someone would have to tag team with me on like actually like containing them. Thank you very much for that. Just going to reassure our viewers that we aren't going to have some Jurassic Park style crisis to deal with them um, to deal with next, because I don't put it past you to do it very quickly. Um, just final comment for young people that are watching this, that are probably a bit intimidated, but also inspired. And as part of your outreach, what's your advice to them? Just first steps, if you want to make a change, if you see a problem, how do you even begin the process of, of making a difference? Yeah, I'm a kid just like you guys. I'm just a kid doing what she loves. And I think that that's so important to say because everything that I'm doing right now, everything that I'm doing started out as a dream, started out as something I wanted to do, something I was like my ideal case. And here I am because first I dream big and then think back to reality. And for all the students and youth watching out there who want to follow their passions, go do it because there's no one stopping you but yourself. I tell you what, there is no dream big enough for you, quite frankly. You are completely amazing. Congratulations. And I think your parents must be bursting with pride, quite frankly, today and always. Gitanjali, great to have you on. Thank you so much. And um, congratulations again. Gitanjali Rowe there. Time's first ever Kid of the Year. All right, coming up after this, into the end game. The clock is ticking on trade talks as the UK and the EU try to iron out their differences. Can they do it? The latest next. Down to the wire with just 24 days until the end of the Brexit transition period. The UK and the EU have still not agreed a deal on their future relationship. Our international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, has been following the latest talks for us and he joins us from London. Nick, these negotiations always go down to the wire. Final minutes to midnight. Where are we, Nick? Any sign of a breakthrough? 
No, we don't seem to be in that position. We heard from Michel Barnier, the EU's chief uh, negotiator, earlier this morning, or at least we heard from people he talked to. He was briefing the EU ambassadors very early this morning before he went into a round of negotiations with David Frost, the British negotiator. Um, and it was seemed to be generally perceived as a downbeat assessment. The assessment is, is, you know, it's up to the UK now, according to an EU diplomat familiar with what Barnier had to say. It's up to the UK now to choose between a positive outcome or no deal. Um, you, you know, you can certainly look at this and see that Barnier's statement this morning and his briefing of the ambassadors early in the day before the negotiations began um, was really in a way of, of, of getting a narrative out there that will put pressure on the British side to concede to understand that the time is running out. The British side understand time is running out as well. They perceive that the EU still has to um, still has to make the moves. The next update we'll get uh, will be in the next couple of hours because Boris Johnson's due to speak with the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in just over an hour's time when they spoke two days ago. They spoke for about an hour. They told their negotiators to get back to negotiating. But it does seem as if those key political decisions on fisheries, on level playing field and on the rules and regulations that would govern any trade deal, um, the clock really is ticking on making a political decision. Uh, and, and the emphasis, as we hear at the moment, is... So much pressure is being put on the British side. Uh, we can imagine they're trying to do the same to the EU. Down to the wire, absolutely. Who's least willing to allow the UK to exit without a deal here, Nick, very quickly, in your view? <laughs> Boris Johnson yes. doesn't have much room for manoeuvre uh, because he has hardliners behind him who say, you know, you must get this tough Brexit. You must get the one that takes back control. That was the slogan that you won the uh, Brexit vote on. That's the one that got you elected as well, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. So he's got he's got hardliners behind him. Boris Johnson has a track record of letting down some of his close friends. Um, that's a possibility. Emmanuel Macron in France is being accused of taking a tough line on the fisheries issue. On the EU side, all EU 27 leaders have to agree on this. Angela Merkel, we understand, is a little softer, wants to talk this through. Um, uh, we're not in the room. I have to be really honest. We're not in that room. So we really, we really don't know. I mean, that's the bottom line. No, no one needs this in the middle of a pandemic. Compromise needed. Nick Robertson in London. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.